0: From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, I care in the
1: developing world. People may know they have worms, may not necessarily associate it with the uh, vision problems. And sometimes, of course, when they're given the medicine, the medicine may cause the worms to um, be expelled in some form, and this can be quite disturbing if they're not properly told about it. First this.
0: The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. John Hubley declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines. Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling... In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be related to the guest. And your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. As incredible as it sounds, one of the most important barriers to health care in developing countries is underutilization of existing health resources. Of course, the fact that this is surprising is an expression of our own hubris. To set us straight, I have John Hubley as my guest today. John is a longtime educator and promoter of healthcare in the developing world. How common is blindness in the developing world?
1: Well, it's certainly very common. I think that something like the Vision 2020 program of the World Health Organization aims to prevent something like 100 million cases of blindness by the year 2020. And what are the common ideologies? Well, I think that, first of all, that some of the cases of blindness are in a way similar to Europe and North America, that is cataracts and glaucoma. But what you have on top, of course, is a huge overlay of avoidable blindness due to um, preventable causes, infectious diseases of various kinds, plus also um, injuries and trauma. And and that is something which we don't have anywhere near as much of that in, in Europe and North America, which is quite unique to the developing world.
0: What role does behavior play in the development of blindness?
1: Well, um, the behavior plays a very important role. I think that it, I think it's probably easier to start with the kinds of causes. After all, many of the um, infectious diseases that lead to blindness are, uh, are caused by parasites like onchocerciasis, that's that, that river blindness, like trachoma, which is uh, another, which is caused by a chlamydia. L- leprosy is also a cause of blindness and also vitamin A deficiency now these infectious diseases are, are all very much geared up all primary prevention for example of, of trachoma is very much linked to issues of uh, face washing, for example and uh, control of flies it's about people presenting early for treatment and if we take things like the um, parasitic infections like on, on-, on- this is a this is a parasite that grows in fast growing water, and you can control the parasite through controlling breeding sites, uh, as, as well as people who are infected taking medicines. So for each of these issues around behavior in uh, primary prevention, as well as use of health services, uptake of health services, uptake of treatment as nearly as possible, are sort of vitally important. So in fact, you know, I think human behavior plays a very important role in the prevention. John, what
0: is Vision 2020?
1: Well, that's a program I've not been directly involved with, but it's one that's been put together by the World Health Organization and various partner organizations to create a, a global network for the prevention of blindness. So it's, um, it's as I said, it's taken the, the goal of reduction of um, 100 million cases by the year um, you know, 2020. It's obviously a play on words on uh, 2020 vision, which we all know about. But it, it, it's it's a major global initiative for national cooperation and also for advocacy for policies that deal with blindness in many countries. In the paper, you
0: make mention of the Ottawa Charter.
1: What is that? Well, this really is, um, very, was a very important milestone in the emergence of health promotion. After all, I think that uh, the Ottawa Charter was dated 1986. Now, before that, we, we, we had a concept of health education um, that was very widespread. But I think that it was realized that, after all, it's all very well you know, education directed at behavior change, but you had to back this up with other means. For example, you have to have not only the health education, but you also have to have the quality services for people that provide appropriate care. And you've also, uh, very important, that the kind of third component is you need to have political change and public policies that actually back up behavior change. So it's all very well talking about people washing their faces to prevent trachoma, but you need to have policies to increase water supply uh, for communities. Uh, it's all very well talking about cataract and um, coming for services, but there's got to be uh, government policies backing up expansion of services to deal with those causes. So, those, so health promotion was a kind of, a, as I said, an, a, an expansion of health education from a straight behavior change perspective based on education to behavior change based on education, improvement in services, and um, political change.
0: What role do cultural impediments play?
1: Well, I think that cultural factors are very important in, in, in all societies, after all. And I think that uh, and they're not always in impediments. There are things you can actually build on within cultures. But I think that some of the um, determinants of people's behavior uh, lies within themselves and their own personal everyday experience. But many determinants of people's actions are you know, related to the, to the community which they live in. Um, the, the, the norms when they're for example, if you take something like trachoma after one of the issues in the uh, in control of flies is the use of toilets. And in fact, so the, the culture in that community about, you know, do people use toilets? If so, what kind of toilets and, and how do people deal with flies uh, become very important. And, um, and so you can't really expect an individual to change on their own. You really have to deal with the community as a whole and the culture that affects that community.
0: Is lack of services, like access to facilities for cataract surgery, the main barrier to treatment?
1: Well, they certainly are a barrier in, in many countries, although I think within the developing world, you know, some countries have done enormous strides. After India, for example, pioneered the eye camps and, and low-cost surgery where you may go in and be able to treat large numbers of people. But I think there is a kind of synergistic interaction between behavior and services in the sense that it's one thing expanding services but you need to make sure they're used and and I think so you've got to also deal with people's fears and anxieties about coming for treatment as well through education. So uh, as I said quality services and health education are sort of two sides of a coin but but both are very important and there's no doubt that lack of services is is a major constraint in um, many countries of the world. Does this lack
0: of uptake apply only to surgical services, or are there similar problems with utilization in things like glaucoma clinics?
1: Yeah, well, I think glaucoma is a real problem area. I think it's. Uh, I think they've barely scratched the surface of glaucoma in the developing world, uh, because it's uh, the peculiar characteristics of, of glaucoma such that there's virtually nothing. You know, very little an individual can do to detect it uh, at an early stage uh, you know, through their own awareness of their symptoms. It has to be seen by a by an eye care professional and uh, detected then. So glaucoma is a real problem other Other health problems after all, I think that there are where services are important after all, services are important for in several areas, one of which is the what we call case finding uh, of people who are sick and treating them. Is very important for certain conditions, particularly trachoma, where there, where there are antibiotics uh, are, are very important in the management of, of trachoma at an early stage, and also river blindness, onchocerciasis, where uh, ivermectin or mektesan, as it's called, is also very important. After all, when you have medicines, it's vitally important to to, to to get them to people in some way. Now, this involves developing the services and persuading people to use them. Although in, in the case of mectizan, which is the um, mainstay of the onchocerciasis, um Prevention Program in Africa. Mectizan a, a, is actually, the drug is available free, it's been donated by Pfizer, but what is a problem is actual delivery to people. So there's been major thrusts in community-based, what is called community-directed distribution in Africa, which has involved mobilizations of thousands of um, volunteers in communities to act as distributors for the drug. And, and that, 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 that's one of the major thrusts in uh, river blindness control. So the actual services are, are important, and um, the issue of lack of services has been handled in various ways through um, expanding the services as well as to use creative alternatives such as mobilizing people from communities to act as informal distributors. While we're on
0: the subject of Ancocirca, to what extent do traditional beliefs play a role in impeding the administration of allopathic care?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I think beliefs play an important role. And some beliefs, of course, are traditional in, in, insofar as they come from the culture and the background and the, and the, and the different systems of health care. Other beliefs have come more recently through their experiences of what they've seen. If you take the example you've mentioned of onchopsychiasis, after beliefs have played a role in, in various communities, I think people, are, first of all, uh, people uh, may be aware of the... Nodules, perhaps I should say a few words about onchocerciasis. It's a disease caused by a tiny worm that is spread by flies. And the worm can, within the body, can spread and move. And it's when it moves to the eyes that it causes the damage that leads to blindness. Now, people may know they have worms, may not necessarily associate it with the vision problems. And sometimes, of course, when they're given the medicine, the medicine may cause the worms to um, be expelled in some form, and this can be quite you know, disturbing if they're not properly told about it. So, so there are various sort of issues around making sure people are aware of, of what the medicine does, and uh, what are the possible side effects that could happen, and to make people to you know realise that these side effects may be normal and, and they shouldn't be uh, worried or anxious about it. So, there's quite a an educational package that has to come with, in this case, oncosciasis, and to some extent, you have the same kind of thing. Each, each area where there's where there, where treatment with drugs, and there are possible both sort of conflicts of what people believe and know about the disease and, and their awareness of, of possible side effects.
0: You make the point that education is important to improve eye health in developing countries. What does education mean?
1: Well, I think that. Uh, can, I, can I just make a point? First of all, I've been working in the last few years, and it's been very interesting work, with a range of clinicians working in, in the area of blindness. And what I find with many of, of the clinicians, they're very good at the clinical work, but often not aware of the kind of, of the patient and the background of the patient and the background of the community. So what one's trying to do is to create an, an understanding of where the patient's coming from, uh, understanding of the, the the ideas and beliefs and feelings they bring to the encounter, and in particular, the role of behavior. Now, I suppose the, the my line is that we need to, Identify and address the uh, behavioural aspects of uh, the uh, treatment uh, and care of people with blindness in order to um, manage the blindness effectively. Uh, at the same time, I would argue that in order to go out beyond the clinic into the community, it, well, we need to do that in order to, to prevent the um, and go to the root causes of the blindness. And I think again, many people involved with blindness care. I think, um, need uh, some assistance and guidance and to build up their confidence to go out in, into the community and get involved in primary prevention.
0: Where should this education take place? What's the right venue?
1: If we're talking about education of, of the community, this education, well, well the obvious place where is, is in the health facilities themselves, because people are coming there. But we then need to go out into, into communities. Now, um, we, in going out, we need to go where people are, which may be their homes, maybe in in community centers, it might be in uh, in the workplace where there are organized workplaces. Also, I think we need to make use of the mass media. Although the mass media are probably more effective in the urban areas, but there have been some very effective mass media programs. For example, the BBC World were involved in um, trachoma programs in um, Africa and also in Nepal. And these appear to have been quite effective. So there's, you know, I think the use of mass media combined with interpersonal uh, approaches within communities is the best strategy to take it forward.
0: Doesn't mass media exclude some of those who need this information the most? And I'm, I'm thinking now uh, in terms of mass media, of print media and excluding those who aren't literate uh, or... In terms geographically of people in villages and in more rural settings who might be out of the the physical reach of mass media,
1: it it, it is true. I think with uh, print media, although it, it's interesting. One thing about print is that it, if you are trying to change policy and um, and reach opinion leaders, print is often quite a good medium for reaching them. Although there are large sections of communities that can read, and I know that, for example, that I, I give examples in my paper of a program in India. That use newspapers to reach people. In fact, even the newspapers contained forms of eye tests that people could um, apply to themselves and to make them think about their eyes. So, um, but I think that you know what one right. What what we need to do is to look at the communities and adjust accordingly. This is why probably, if we're looking at mass media, the most effective mass media is in the in the developing world is probably radio, uh, because that reaches large sections of the community and um uh, uh, and uh, it can be very uh, many people listen to it and and enjoy it, and you can do quite a lot
0: rather than presenting allopathic health care as an alternative to traditional health care, to what extent have traditional healers themselves been enlisted to provide allopathic care?
1: right. I think that if we go right across primary health care in the developing world, there's been a lot of discussion about um, traditional health care because often the allopathic doctors simply not there and people go to traditional healers of various kinds and they are providing a lot of frontline service. In the field of blindness, So traditional healers have, there have been several issues after all. I think there has been a concern that some of the treatments given by traditional healers might actually be harmful. I think some attempt to try and work with traditional healers to deal with some of the harmful effects but trying to build bridges and have them on one side. My uh, well, a colleague of mine, Paul Courtwright, who's based in um, Tanzania, has been doing very good work working with traditional healers, training them, and involving them in their programme. And I think, on the whole, if you can, where people have actually given a a, a a partnership role to traditional healers rather than treating them as the enemy, I think there's been some major progress uh, made in um, utilising that resource. For well health in general, but uh, but but i healthcare in particular. Can I have you give the example of Bangladesh? The Bangladesh example, I think one of the interesting things with that is is that it worked in schools, and mosques, and community settings. And I think that the feature about working with mosques, and working with religious leaders is very important, and has been used in a number of cases in the developing world when working in disease prevention. And I think that uh, there have been, in fact, quite interesting examples in different parts of the world, not necessarily in blindness, but working with Christian leaders, with Muslim leaders, and also with Buddhist monks involving them as key opinion leaders within communities in their health education programs. John,
0: what is social marketing?
1: Well, um, social marketing uh, was basically a, an idea which came in about 15, 20 years ago. But to use the techniques we use in advertising to, uh, for promotion of social goals, in particular health goals, so, in a way, it's the use of mass media, but social marketing puts a lot of emphasis on getting the product right, and I was thinking very carefully about what, what you're asking people to do, uh, making it uh, relevant, appropriate, and also um, attractive and interesting and worth doing, uh, backed up by, with a lot of attention on uh, the effective use of promotion, such as mass media, and um, also thinking about where you're going to make the product available so people can get hold of it easily.
0: When you create an educational program, what sort of information do you need to gather first?
1: Well, basically, I think one, what we promote now is the idea of systematic planning, which means going through a, an actual systematic procedure of thinking through well having decided what you 're trying to do um, to promote and change, finding out you know, basic information about the communities you know, where they are. What they are, what they actually do about those at the moment about those particular health behaviors, what services they use, what practices they practice in the home, and then what do they think about the um, things which you're trying to to promote? What's their level of awareness? Do they know about what they know already? Uh, Are are they interested already? uh, Do they need, or are they at a very early stage in, in, in their thinking about the topic, or have they begun thinking about it for a while and may need to be? After one, one thing which I'm afraid which we, I had to cut out of my paper was the application of various behavioural models which have been developed in health promotion that help you to think about emphasis on people's actions. After one very well-known model is called the Health belief Model, for example, and uh, in which you try and find out uh, whether people feel they're susceptible to the problem. Do they feel that it's a serious problem? Uh, that could cause problems? Do they feel that the benefits of taking action are um, outweigh the effort they, that's needed to uh, deal with the problem? So a model like that can give a lot of ideas about where you need to put your educational emphasis. Another useful model, I'll, I'll give you one more, is the, a model called the Stages of Change Model. And, and in that one, you try and find out where people are at. Uh, with that particular action. Say, for example, we're looking at vitamin A deficiency and the the prevention of blindness. After all, we we try and categorize the community in terms of the stages. After all, for example, are they aware of vitamin A in the first instance? Uh, If they are aware, have they thought about changing their behavior in some respect through taking either vitamin A supplements or vitamin A-rich foods? Uh, Have they even tried changing their behavior already? Or or have they tried but perhaps relapsed? So um, depending on where they are in this adoption process, you can tailor-make the message to address their own very specific needs.
0: How do you measure the efficacy of a program?
1: Right. Well, in in the short term, it's useful just to know the information which you try to put across. Have they understood it and and can they remember it? Now, now changes in knowledge doesn't necessarily mean very much. So we try and go beyond that to look to see, has it led to any change in their behavior? Uh, have they adopted uh, uh, the, the practice? Has there been an increase in uptake in the, in the, in the clinics, uh, for example, have they started using latrines more? Have they um, changed their diet, for example? Then in the longer term, we, we do try and look for improvements in health. As I said health takes a bit longer, but a number of studies have, you know, do use health outcomes, which are obviously very important. Um, yeah uh, because that of course is what you're trying to achieve in the end so those three levels of i said of um, knowledge understandings behavior change and health outcome represent the kind of three levels of evaluation can
0: i have you walk me through an example of this sort of structured planning and outcome measurement or or would that just be too involved
1: it's certainly quite involved but if let's let's just give a very simple example supposing we were looking at increasing vitamin a consumption to prevent uh, blindness in young children. Now we, we have to decide first of all the most suitable way of, of vitamin A enhancement in that community because there are two options there's one through uh, vitamin A supplements which are basically kind of, uh, in a way a medical approach but but you might be able to d- distribute these through schools for example Or we might l- want to look at dietary changes like the increase in consumption of green leafy vegetables. So we have to, to think about which of those two we're promoting. And in order to make that decision, we need to know about the, the community, what they're doing already, and what sort of possible obstacles or barriers we, we might have through to either, say, um, the dietary change or vitamin A consumption. Uh, we need to know whether there are resources we can build on in the community as well. There might be schools where we can uh, use as distribution points for vitamin A supplements, or there might be agricultural uh, workers already there working particularly with women who we might use for uh, developing kitchen gardens. So having got that information, we would then be able to put together an actual plan. And um, I think in the process of putting together the plan, we would certainly want to work with communities to find out what they think about the possible solutions and to involve, for example, women themselves in deciding the best way of organising kitchen gardens and and, and how which might uh, suit them. So we would then build a an actual program based on our understandings of the community, our dialogue and this participation and uh, we would run this over over a period of time. Now obviously depending on the nature of the resources and the, if it was a research-based program or not, we, we might have done a baseline, a, a study at the beginning of the behaviors we're looking at and the extent of those behaviors. So we can look to see to to what extent at the end we promoted some kind of change and as I said before that change could be knowledge and understandings, say, for example, of vitamin A and um, blindness prevention, or it could be behavior, practices, uh, behaviors such as the cultivation of foods or the consumption of vitamin A supplements, or, or it could actually be measures such as the, um, the, well, the, the vitamin A status of, of, of the children. And then that change could be used for evaluation purposes.
0: Now, to sort of bring this home, As an ophthalmologist in a large metropolitan area in the developed world, uh, a a large, very international area, uh, I and my colleagues see patients uh, from less developed parts of of the world. Is there any advice that you can give us in the context of our own clinical practices?
1: Right. Well, Obviously, I think the clinical side, is, it would be comparably straightforward, uh, but it's, as you say, quite rightly, it could well be the cultural side where there might be barriers. What I would do is to think very carefully. If you are wanting the person to fulfill certain actions, to change their diet, change their behavior, or change their lifestyle in any way, I think you have to think very carefully about uh, what those changes you're going to be promoting and to try and find out with that person, the appropriateness and um, feasibility of those changes. For example, if you were wanting to change diet, uh, you need to think very carefully about the nature of that dietary change. In fact, the ideal, in an ideal situation, you would actually not uh, advocate particular foods, but you start by discussing with people their own diet and what they would want to do uh, and what's acceptable to them and how they would, uh, uh, and what foods would, would would fit in within their cultures and beliefs. I think that, that that's one dimension about behaviour change. I think that um, one of the other things I think probably is relevant is which is related even even to the sort of clinical side of work. Is I think is to be aware when people are coming, after um, what they already know about that condition, what they what their expectations are from you as a, as a um, clinician. Uh, do they have any expectations that might be different from what you would normally be be doing? And and uh, I think so. Having some idea of that will also help to think because you, you might find that people are coming to you and you're doing things which which may seem sensible to you, but in fact they may be puzzled because it 's not what they were expecting or would have wanted and may then be dissatisfied because of that so I think there's, there's two issues of understanding their expectations and trying to at least to meet them or to explain why you 're not meeting them, and secondly to think through the behavior changes to be aware of potential cultural problems you know, uh, that, that might get in the way of those behavior changes and, and, and to address them.
0: John, what can we do to help uh, in terms of eye care in the less developed world?
1: Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, I think that, uh, well, I suppose there are various levels which we can help out all. all of us as, as, as citizens of, of societies that are immensely rich compared with other parts of the world. And have a responsibility as citizens to to try and encourage our our governments to take the appropriate actions in uh, communities to improve the um, living standards of people. Now, but but that's going more specifically to one's role as an ophthalmologist. I suppose there's probably, it's through one's professional organizations, one can work with people from different parts of the world to network, to share, to support, to help. To establish dialogue with with people, because certainly many practitioners in the developing world uh, welcome contacts with people from the West and welcome sharing and learning. Uh, so I suppose there is at, at that level. But I suppose I, I ought to perhaps throw this question back at you: What you think as an ophthalmologist? Because I am not an ophthalmologist working in um, uh, you know I'm based in, in Europe, but I mainly work in the US, well in the the, the developing world um, as a uh, health nurse specialists out what do you as ophthalmologists feel uh, are the, are the kind of things ophthalmologists might want to do well you know
0: that's a very interesting question i wonder how much impact we make when we as clinicians travel overseas and uh, perform clinical work as opposed to concentrating on things like public hygiene and sanitation you mentioned the case of trachoma what would improve the management of trachoma in the less developed world is not so much clinicians traveling to treat patients as work on public sanitation. Do you see a continued benefit to ophthalmologists, to clinicians traveling overseas to perform cataract surgery and to uh, train local ophthalmologists in ophthalmic and ophthalmic s- surgical techniques?
1: Well, I think that it's, it's actually it's um, in a way cataract. One of the issues with cataract is, is there is no such thing as as primary prevention for cataract, you've got to you, you really only have surgery, and um, and it is something with the developing world is although it's a young population it's an ageing one so you know there will be issues around around cataract uh, so there will be a role with, with with cataract for surgery but at the same time there as you say with things like trachoma it, it probably is latrines so which is probably very little that ophthalmologists can do on that area except to take part in global advocacy for more efforts placed on um, issues around latrines. Well, interesting, trachoma is is quite interesting insofar as, again, Pfizer have been quite active in making azithromycin available in the developing world. And I think it's clear these drug companies uh, are amenable to pressure and they have been prepared to make various philanthropic gestures. And I think that Clinicians in the first world have a have a role to play in pushing for more of this now as, as far as flying in and um, Doing things after all, I think it's very valuable to have people working together And I think that there is there is a role for people going out and, and sharing their expertise and at the same time learning because I think that what people have developed in uh, countries like India in uh, low-cost simple surgery are things perhaps we may learn from and, and have and can and can see it as a benefit. So there is, some, there is, I think, enormous value in interchange between people because it creates global understanding of each other's position. It, it, it suggests ways we can help and do things. So perhaps, but perhaps it's more of an attitude of mind that when we do go out, we're not going out as, as people that know, all, know it all and have all the answers. The people who are going out to work with and to share and to learn from and to exchange and to build partnerships and, and networks across the globe. Yeah, so it's a more of a uh, uh, it's it's a kind of less arrogant approach. John,
0: can you point us to a resource in terms of uh, understanding some of these issues with uh, blindness in developing countries?
1: There's a table that's actually on my website, but it's 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 something which didn't didn't get in the in the actual publication, which had to be sort of chopped down. But it was designed to be in a page, a sort of kind of summary of um, the main issues, and, and in fact. Um, I said, it is on my website, and so it, uh, it's www.hubley.co.uk.
0: I'll put a link to that on the description of today's program on the website.
1: I've called it the Eye Health Matrix, and it's in, this, in the section of my website that says the eye health. Uh, it's just a bit further down. Basically, it, 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 it's a table which I put the cause of blindness, each cause of blindness, and for each one, I say, in the developing world, I say, for example, cataract, and I say, and I decide the immediate cause, risk factors, I've summarized, and I say the role of the community in the case of cataract is willingness for people to have cataract surgery. And then I give examples of the sort of environmental policy and sociocultural influences that might affect that uh, cataract. Uh, so it, for, for each one, it goes through you know, the role of behavior for that particular case and some of the issues that affect, that influence that behavior. In, in the developing world. John Hubley,
0: thank you very much.
1: Okay, then. Uh, nice, to, uh, nice to talk to you, then.
0: Okay, then. Bye. John Hubley is Principal Lecturer in Health Promotion at Leeds Metropolitan University in Leeds, United Kingdom. His paper, Eye Health Promotion and the Prevention of Blindness in Developing Countries, Critical Issues, appears in the March 2006 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. <laughs> ask questions of Dr. Kubley or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype, jyoungmd. Those numbers can be found on our website, as asseenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.